Today's chat is brought to you by, well, all of your support. Through the patronage you provide the Focus Fire chat team through Podbean's crowdfunding, we are able to provide you with the weekly podcast as well as the website and other aspects of Focus Fire chat. If you have any interest in becoming a patron of the FFC, please be sure to visit our website and click on the support link. Even a single dollar helps. And for those of you who are already patrons, thank you again for your generosity. You may have heard the whispers of guardians gathering in the shadows, exploring the mysteries of this world and the worlds which surround us. We are all in search of truth. Sometimes we need to focus that search, focus that fire. And so we come together. Join us. Join the discussion. Welcome to Focused Fire Chat. Welcome back for episode 158 of Focus Fire Chat, recorded live on February 15th over on twitch.tv slash focusfirechat. As always, want to give a big shout out to our live chat here with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Our topic for tonight's episode is going to be a look at morality of a guardian. But first, let's run through a quick introduction of those on the show for tonight. As always, this is your host, Blue Crew 86 Next up, we have our own master of social media, the one and only Green-Eyed Music Lover. Green, I hope you're doing well. How's the week treated you so far? Good. It's just been another week of chaos and house planning and looking at paint and picking out flooring and figuring out how to tear up carpet, which we haven't gotten in the house, guys. Just letting you know, we're not in the house. <laughs> We're just planning everything we could possibly plan before we get even the keys. Yeah, to be fair, you probably want to tear the carpet up before you get into the house, though. Oh, yeah, that's that's what we're actually planning on doing. We have we sign on the 28th of this month and then we gave ourselves a two week leeway between the lease going up here where we're at, at currently and going into the new house. So we plan on getting in there the first weekend, tearing all the carpet out. And putting kills down on every all, every surface we can possibly cover because it was a house, a three bedroom condo with seven people living there. So, and five of them were children. So we're gonna fix some things. <laughs> Just a some lot things. of things. Yeah, I was about to say. A lot of things. <laughs> oh well, I know. Uh... <laughs> I know that this week we didn't have a question for the community because the the um, how would we Topic? best say this the the uh, tenuousness <laughs> of this oh week's topic. Um, so we're gonna we'll just run through our standard intro notes and then we're gonna jump right into it. In our last episode of Focus Fire Chat, we discussed the Forsaken Prince lore book. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate, and if you can, leave us a written review on iTunes or comment on the episodes on Podbean or whichever podcasting app you use to enjoy podcasts. Reviews are extremely helpful as they not only let us know what we can do better, but help continue to expand the FFC family, which allows more and more perspectives to be heard. To those of you who have already taken the time to leave us a review, thank you. 
As many of you already know, Focus Fire Chat is a cross-community gathering where the intent is to offer a week-long, in-depth view of a particular subject from within the lore of Destiny and other games. This chat begins every Tuesday morning and runs until the following Tuesday, with topics decided by the group via a poll that begins every Friday and ends on the Tuesday morning of the new chat. Every Friday at around 10 p.m. Central, we get together to stream a high-level summary of the previous week's chat for those who are unable to participate. If you're a fan of lore in all its various forms, be sure to also check out thelorenetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of some amazing content that covers a number of different titles and mediums. This will also be the new home for the Focus Fire Chat episode note archives and articles going forward. Our next chat is going to be a discussion on the Book of Unmaking. As usual, our plan is to set aside next week's discussion for a summarization of the extra lore content for February, near. With all that being said, here's Green with a high-level summary of tonight's topic. Morality speaks of a system of behavior in regards to standards of right or wrong behavior. The word carries the concepts of moral standards, moral responsibility, and moral identity. Within the game, there has been a continued blurring of the lines when it comes to the idea of right and wrong, pushing our character to dive deeper into their own emotional and moral resolve. Our own moral identity has been continually challenged with the loss of the speaker and the current division within the vanguard, and our moral responsibility and moral compass have ever evolved as our characters have been challenged to make difficult decisions. Granted, those decisions were made for us, but hey, what can you do? Before we jump into the information and thoughts that the community had about the morality of a guardian, however, let's have a quick chat about this week's Lost Lore. Um, so this week for Lost Lore, I actually wanted to talk about, I was originally planning on talking about the difference between morality and ethics, which I think actually Pins did a really good job on the Halo episode, if you guys haven't had a chance to listen to that one. But I was mentioning to Green, uh, right before I, I got on tonight, I was looking up some, uh, some, it's basically called Current Anthropology. Is a, it's a publication, and the University of Oxford actually just published a paper talking about morality of cooperation, and it was a really interesting study that they've been doing for, oh man, they've been working on this thing for several, several years, and basically what they did was they looked at about 60 different cultures around the world and throughout various or various points in time, uh, and just, I mean, it's like over 600,000 texts that they examined and just looked at all the stuff and it was published in February of 2019 so really it was really just recently um, and what they basically found and this is going to be really relevant I think to the conversation tonight um, 
is that, and this is a quote from Dr. Curry, who is the the lead researcher there, and he said, people everywhere face a similar set of social problems and use a similar set of moral rules to solve them. As predicted, these seven moral rules appear to be universal across cultures. Everyone, everywhere, shares a common moral code. All agree cooperating, promoting the common good is the right thing to do. And so that's the end quote. And so these seven universal moral rules that they kind of found and I'm going to I'm going to kind of explain these also after I read them off here. Uh, So the first one was helping your family. The second one is helping your group. The third one is returning favors. Fourth is be brave. Fifth is defer to superiors. The sixth was divide resources fairly. And the seventh was respect others property. So these are the seven universal moral rules that in all the 60 cultures that they they looked into, these behaviors were always present and always considered good. Uh, Now, the thing to keep in mind, the findings, really, they divided the findings into three major things. The first one was that, like I just said, all these behaviors were all present and all of them were considered morally good. Uh, The second thing was that while most of these rules were present in most of the society or most of these rules were present in the societies, none of the societies held any counterexamples. And what that means is that none of these viewed, none of the societies viewed any of these rules as morally bad. So there was nothing where those seven were considered to be not a good thing to, to achieve. And the morals were observed equally across all cultures. However, there is a differentiation that while all values were present, the priority was different in the different cultures. So one culture might have, um, you know, one culture might be a, a more warlike culture, and they would be more obviously more or more likely to focus on being brave and you know deferring to superiors and dividing the resources earned through battle fairly. Whereas a you know a culture that is hunter gatherer or a, uh, a wandering hunter uh, culture would be more of aligned with helping family or helping group and you know respecting others' property. You know then you have the difference between individualistic and con- uh, uh, communal. Uh, societies they're, they're obviously going to have different views but the thing is is that even though these different moral rules have different priorities within these cultures all seven were always there uh, and so the morality is it's called the morality as cooperation theory there's four primary things in here it's kin selection mutualism social exchange and conflict resolution those are the four things that kind of break up this type of concept of what is morally correct and really wrong and the kin selection is really the part that explains where we get the sense of helping your family. It explains the sense of having a special duty to care for over our family and why we actually, to kind of be blunt, why a lot of cultures abhor the concept of incest. This is where that sense of that as being wrong comes from. Uh, the second one is mutualism. Uh, and that is going to be talking about helping your group. And it explains why we form groups and coalitions because of the strength in numbers concept. Uh, why most people will value unity, solidarity, and even loyalty. That's, that's what mutualism is really all about. <clears throat> and then social exchange is de- dealing with returning of favors. Uh, so this explains why we trust others, why we reciprocate favors, uh, why you feel guilt and gratitude with or guilt or gratitude in a social situation, why you have a a social urging to make amends and forgive even 
different uh, transgressions against you. And then finally, the conflict resolution. And honestly, when it comes to morality uh, as a social construct and morality as cooperation, you're going to see a lot of focus on conflict resolution. Uh, conflict resolution in this particular model explains pretty much everything other, everything else. So be brave, deferring to superiors and uh, resources, as well as respecting others' property. Uh, and so conflict resolution within the morality as cooperation theory explains why we engage in displays of prowess, which is uh, how you can explain bravery and generosity in a culture, uh, why you defer to superiors, why we divide resources fairly, and even how uh, or explains how and why we put so much emphasis on recognizing prior ownership of an item. Uh, and this is very important, you know, very, very polarizing cultures such as the individualistic or even the communal, the communal not so much, but the individualistic societies will put a lot of, uh, a lot of weight on respect others' property because they want their property respected. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a recognition there. Um, this particular paper is called Is It Good to Cooperate? Testing the Theory of Morality as Cooperation in 60 Societies. Uh, and it's actually available in, I believe, this this iteration of current anthropology. And that actually leads me into the next point. So that was, that was morality as cooperation within a social situation. Um, the next thing that I want to kind of get everyone in the mindset of is the concept of moral judgments, because that's going to be a big topic for i think tonight uh, i know green has promised to be my devil's advocate for this whole conversation yes. so the the concept of moral judgment uh this is from dr anir govern uh this was a paper that he or a book actually that he published in 2018 called ethics and attachment how we make moral judgments and i'm just going to actually read this uh a couple series of quotes here that really kind of summarize what his his explanation is and i i well, I'll, I'll talk about my thoughts on it after I get done. So he says, at their core, moral judgments require us to judge between two parties. Moreover, moral judgments are not limited to judging one isolated component of a moral situation, such as intentionality or the extent of harm covered or caused, but rather require an assessment of an entire relationship that is held up to our prior expectations of how relationships of this type should be handled. One of the most important factors in judging relations is assessing the asymmetry of power between the parties. Within the dyad, we identify relations between two sides, strong, weak, dependent, independent, helpless, in control. We have a range of expectations as to how the strong party in a dyad should and should not behave towards the weak side. We perceive moral failure when, as observers, we believe that the, the conduct of the strong towards the weak has violated our expectations. This social cognition is universal. We always expect the strong to protect the weak or at least cause him no harm. This expectation stands behind every person's moral judgment in every culture. However, even though the cognitive calculation is universal, our relations towards each of the sides and sympathy and hostility we feel towards them constitute an unstable and variable set of factors that differ from person to person and from culture to culture. Thus, suffering per se is not enough to elicit empathy without some attachment to the victim. So, and he goes on actually to explain that the predominant difference uh, that you see with expectations of the strong towards the weak is uh, very, very strongly influenced by the individual's first year of life uh, because of the idea that at that point in time, 
we are the weak party and everything else is the strong party. And so how the strong enacts within or acts upon us kind of flavors how we expect things to be in our future. Now, I don't I don't necessarily agree 100% with what he's saying. I I get where he's coming from. I like the idea that the the uh so uh sorry, real quick, dyad is a system of two. Uh so you have opposed like uh light and dark, white and black. Uh mm-hmm. you know, that's that that's what a dyad is. It's a there's a huge etymology. Yeah, there's a huge etymology there, but but ultimately it's dyad. So you have strong, weak. That's where that's where those that concept comes from. Um, I think that's a very gross oversimplification of morality. Um, but at the same time, and this was I was actually talking to my wife a little bit before this. At the same time, that is also the a very strong theme in what's called uh, contemporary uh, dentology, uh, which we'll get into here when I get into the introduction a little bit because the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that morality is one of these things that has been around for a long time. Uh, it's, Mm -hmm. it's definitely, definitely been around ever since really anybody got beyond the, let's just, you know, eat and get safe mentality. I mean, it's any sort of pack, any sort of group mentality because morality helps guide a group into a social order. Right. Well, and actually, that's kind of a good segue, if you will, into what is morality? You know, mm-hmm. what, what what specific when we say morality specifically, uh, what we have to keep in mind is morality is often defined as a particular system of values and principles of conduct. So kind of what Green's saying right there is and it, it's it's a particular system or principle, especially that is held by a specific person or even a society. So this can be simplified into the statement of morality being the extent to which an action is right or wrong. Um, however, so can, can yeah, I can I have you can I have you right next to that contrast it with what ethics is versus mm-hmm. morality? So <clears throat> this is where I kind of hesitate because ethics ethics is it's like what's the difference between a square and a rectangle? Mm-hmm. Um, ethics is really the branch of let me. Let me I, let me let me grab my note. <clears throat> yeah, because there's so there's always that the, the confusion between uh, ethics and morality taking place, even though they are super similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. So a lot of people will say um, that ethics is so morality is influenced by society, culture and or religion, whereas ethics are influenced by professional fields and organizations. Morality um, doesn't have to be tied to religion. It though. does not. It does not. And actually, there is a very interesting, another anthropologist uh, wrote a very interesting article, I believe it was a couple months ago. Even C.S. Um, Lewis talked about that aspect. Right. Well, he- but there was a, there's a article that was recently published about how the decline in religious... Um, structure mm, not structure but uh loyalty i guess would it's not it's not loyalty mm. but like uh uh religious Dependency? rigor religious rigor mm-hmm. uh even though that's declining in the current day uh for all sake for all intents and purposes um the the morale the mora- moral code of society has not degraded in the same sense and the reason being is that exactly what you're saying there, Green, is like, so there is, 
uh, this is kind of getting ahead of us a little bit, but there is a particular dentological ethics theory called divine command theory uh, mm-hmm. that does have very specific tie-ins to um, to religion that is that is there. But mm-hmm. um, it's that's to, to be blunt, it's only one theory, <laughs> and actually a lot of the theories that. I really kind of I ascribe to is are more I I don't want to call them secular but they're not religious at all they they social based um yeah social contract I guess maybe mm-hmm. though I though I feel dirty saying that because there's yeah. connota- there's connotations with that with Lockean uh concepts but it, it's it's uh let me explain ethics real quick and then yeah. I'm gonna come back to that because it is a very good point that you have um my point there was that morality is much more about the con like what it's it's about society um and so religion is often ascribed to a, a more social nature or cultural nature um and i know that's a very gross oversimplification of all three of those items but right. that's where morality comes from whereas ethics are you're going to be you're going to be uh more determined by ethics ethics are more focused on uh, uh, structured, uh, uh, structured professionalism, uh, professional expectations, organizations within those societies. The thing about ethics is that they deal with morality. Um, so the primary way to differentiate is basically, is the matter related to a professional work? So ethic is morality is not, and is the matter a uniform application? So something like ethics would be uniform. Uh, it doesn't matter what happens, where it's happening, it's going to be applied the same, whereas morals will basically vary according to different cultures and religions, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, a, and you see this a lot within the difference between you know the East and the West civilizations. There's there's a lot, which is going back to that uh, piece about the morality as cooperation. That was one of the big interesting things was that those seven truths were found in every culture. Regardless, it wasn't just the Western culture. It wasn't just Eastern culture. It was every culture had those seven truths, which was a really, really, that has major ramifications uh, for the philosophy, the schools of philosophy called ethics, which brings me to the actual definition of ethics. Ethics is basically the branch of philosophy that studies and addresses questions of morality. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So ethics morality it's it's like saying um morality is like a 50,000 foot view ethics is like a 45,000 foot view it's it's about as high but it's slightly more focused because ethics is focusing on what is morality whereas morality is kind of focused on what is right and wrong you know um and so from a philosophical point of view ethics is looking at it well the way we determine what is right and wrong, we have to kind of understand why it's right and wrong. Uh, that gets into a whole slew of different theories, which is kind of where going back to Green, your question about or your statement about religion is 100% on the mark. Um, mm-hmm. One of those theories I mentioned is the divine command theory. Uh, now, the divine command theory is it it falls within what's called normative ec- so there's this is going to get this might get a little messy um there's a branch within ethics so ethics is a school of philosophy there is a branch within that that is called normative ethics this branch is basically 
a branch of the philosophical ethics that examines the set of questions which arise when considering how one ought to act morally. Uh, and this one, this this particular branch is more of a prescriptive system. It's not a descriptive system because where other branches um, will focus on the empirical investigations of people's moral beliefs, this one is actually looking at the standards for the rightness and wrongness of an action. Um, and one of those theories, it's what's called uh deontology deontology is a particular theory or a group of theories really Uh, deontological ethics uh, which is also deontology is really focused on the morality of an action and whether that morality of an action should be based on whether the action itself is right or wrong under a series of rules or if the how, how you consider it should it be the action itself or should it be the consequence of those actions um and under this particular theory, you have ideas such as Kantianism, which is Immanuel, Immanuel Kant, uh, natural mm-hmm. natural rights, which a lot of people will be kind of familiar Locke. with. Yep, yes. John Locke and Robert Nozick. Uh, contractualism, which is an individual named John Rawls, or Rawls, I apologize. And then uh, divine command theory. Divine command theory, which will actually tie into destiny a little bit. Divine command theory is the idea that an action is right if God, air quotes on that, God has decreed it as such. So basically, these are uh, these are th- this is a theory that argues that morality is determined by the handing down of a a, a sacred a text command, or, right? Yeah. Right, a sacred orders. Basically, uh, there are, as you can imagine, plenty of arguments back and forth, especially focused around divine command theory. Um, and not just against like Christianity or Judaism or any of the major religions. I mean, every religion will have, uh, apologist and non apologist, uh, points of view on this. And the, mm-hmm. the thing there is again, you know, arguably anything can be justified if that's your only justification. And that's the problem that a lot of people have with the divine command theory. Um, Kantianism, which is a, it's a much more interesting one. I'm going to focus on that one because I don't want to get in trouble with divine command theory. Uh, Kantianism mm-hmm. is the is the theory that sorry is the theory no, that I argue, know where you're going <laughs> is the theory that it is the motivation of the actor rather than the consequence of the action that makes the work right or wrong. So this is an idea that so the predominant debate here is say you do something uh, say you lie is lying wrong in a vacuum it's like do you want me to give the answer that you're looking for or well and that's that's kind of the thing right is like it depends and a lot of people would argue it depends on the situation that is the white lie right that is not kantianism Mm -hmm. kantianism says lying is wrong always tell the truth or you know whatever whatever action it is it is always wrong there is no justification for it Mm -hmm. you you are intending to do a harm against another, whether that be a harm that is uh, is fatal or insubstantial. It doesn't matter. You are doing harm against another person. Mm-hmm. That is, in and of itself, a moral wrong. That is what Kantianism says. Um, you have ideas. Uh, let me see real quick. I want to say it's it's not contractualism. Uh, 
consequentialism, uh, mm-hmm. which is a very broad theory, but uh, basically con- consequentialism focuses on the outcome result as determination of morality of an action. Uh, so the white lie in that case, if it saves correct. a person from so, the pain. Right. But the problem there with consequentialism is that when you justify when you justify the means by the ends, it's mm-hmm. very easy to start justifying really bad stuff. Um, if you ever want to look at historical records of just pick your war, you're going to find uh, one side. One World side. War Two. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty bad one um and that was bad on a lot of different sides right i mean right. no one no one has a clean hands in this situation uh but uh consequentialism will be the people who are like the ends justify the means uh depending on the type of leader that you have and they're kind of pulling back into let's look at destiny real quick you know depending on you know if uh i, I don't really think any of our particular powerful leaders in destiny or consequentialist consequentialist gosh i cannot say that word Mm-mm. um i think the speaker close... was kind of like divine rate aspect yeah speaker was more divine divine command and even he was actually more of a kantianism uh mm-hmm. because he uh he was very very allocentric in the sense that he was all about protecting the other uh, so you you're you have a concept you have a dyad of egocentricism versus allocentricism. Uh, this concept is basically the idea of selfishness versus selflessness, uh, which is a very very oversimplification of that. But uh, egocentrical is is someone who is focused on themselves predominantly, not necessarily unhealthily or not necessarily bad, but they just they focus on themselves first. Um, allocentric is a person who focuses on the other, which is a a term that you hear a lot in philosophy, especially modern philosophy, when you discuss things that are not internal. So the external person, um, there's a lot of talk about how if you focus on the other, you know, that is a more allocentric that's, that's not, and that, that in the same vein, that's not always a good thing. That can be a bad thing. If you focus on the other too much, um, you can start losing it, it it can become unhealthy in the same way that if you focus on yourself too much that becomes unhealthy right there's a there's a danger of narcissism if you focus on yourself too much there's a danger of self like self neglect if you focus on the other too much so there's a very self-deprecation self self-sabotage correct though i mean sab- I, I don't know if sabot well yeah i guess you could do that um but like there there's a fine line right between those mm-hmm. two um <clears throat> so those are like those are really uh there's virtue ethics uh which is your Arist- aristotelian and thomas aquinas um so virtue ethics are going to be more like focus on the inherent character rather than actions so like your idea of um are you <laughs> It's it kind of it kind of enters into a little bit of a loophole because it's like the argument of like are you a good person or are you a bad person? Well, when you're dealing with morality, the entire point is is the action a good thing or a bad thing? So it's subjective if you're a good person or a bad. Like it's that that particular one is uh, is a very early school. Uh, there's still some thoughts around virtue ethics, um, but the the overall 
the overarching idea of virtue ethics is going to be focusing on the character rather than the action. Uh, then we have the deontology, which is focusing on the decisions. Um, basically, deontology focuses on decisions being made in consideration of duty and obligation. Uh, so that's where you get like natural rights, uh, which is the social contract idea, divine command mm-hmm. theory. So you have the the obligation to follow that contractualism, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like contracts. Uh, Kantianism, which is you know we kind of we've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, consequentialism is focusing on the outcome. So again, the ends meet them or the ends justify the means. Uh, so you have like welfareism, welfareism, intellectualism, uh, situation ethics, uh, egoism, all this different stuff. Uh, we also have ethics of care. Um, ethics of care is kind of a, it's also known as relational ethics. It's kind of a newer particular it's a newer branch or newer theory uh it focuses on the experience of empathy and compassion and it's uh most notably well the, it was pretty much created by a feminist theorist by the name of carol gilligan it follows a lot it it falls much heavier into psychology the philosophy of psychology and stuff of that nature because it's much more focused on um obviously the relational the mental well-being and all that there's ethics of care is a really interesting particular theory as well. Um, and then there's, and there's pragmatic ethics, which is just really fun to research because basically pragmatic ethics is the idea that morality is something that evolves in tandem with scientific knowledge. Um, so you have William James, uh, John Dewey are two of the predominant theory or thinkers. Oh, in Dewey. This. Yeah. Dewey, uh, yeah, William James is much more interesting in my mind. Dewey, I, I, I don't know. Dewey, I just... Dewey's like your entry level. Like, I remember him from philosophy class back in the day. Yeah, just... yeah. Yeah, Dewey, Dewey has... I mean, it, Dewey has... I don't know. Like I said, I like James, but James is also more affiliated with psychology. So that's where my interests kind of have always lied. Um, Dewey, I want to say Dewey is... Mm-hmm, he is. Is the... Because uh, he, he is. was... The he, philosophy I mean, of you, the philosophy of early education, right? Yes. Okay. Because he was the one who, yeah. You you continue talking on the other ones, and I will bring up his theory because this is something I actually had to go through with early education stuff. So impact theory, all the impact theory. Yeah, and then finally the the newer one, and I don't honestly know a lot about this one is role ethics. This this theory is a theory that focuses on morality as based on the concept of family roles. I don't know a lot about that one. So I kind of was like, I saw it mentioned and I was like, I'll put it in there. But I, I honestly don't know much about that particular. Um, a lot of the contemporary uh, deontology and contemporary normative kind of approaches are, they get kind of interesting. I'll say that much. Um, mm-hmm. Let's but yes. get into the comparisons and destiny and kind of. Yes. Now that now Slightly you're now that everyone everyone appreciates my madness. Um yes, Jeez. let's let's start let's start talking about how this all all this nonsense applies to guardians. Um are we gonna go the easy spectrum of it, good, bad, and neutral, or are we gonna go <laughs> I think that's a good way to start. I don't think it's gonna end that way. Oh but... no. I'm planning <laughs> but... on bringing up a few of my own that are not listed here. <laughs> I mean, right, right. I mean like I, I and oh man. Um <laughs> 
see, like, even I don't like, I don't like, because the thing is, and like, you'll notice the banner, right? Like the reason the banner has like the blurred lines is there's no such thing as a clean division between good, bad, and neutral. Like there, there isn't, it's just, that's not the way, I mean, that's not the way reality mm-hmm. works. And that's it's a one sliding of the sliding scale. Well, and that's what I like about Bungie is the way they write their characters is that they do reflect reality. There's not a, you know, like Zavala. Zavala is a predominantly, he's pretty good, but he's also made some really bad calls as you do (laughs) because you're in the middle of a war. Like there's like, you know, and then, you know, like Rezel. I mean, to his, to the extent of bad calls though, his was based on protecting his social charge right right and the, but but what i'm saying here is that we also have to take into account you know well i mean yeah i mean the problem with zavala is so like zavala is uh he, he's his focus is really the safeguarding of humanity right the, the dream mm-hmm. of the last city you know let's just look at zavala real quick uh zavala is obsessed with this dream of the last city which is a very honorable thing it's very it's a very noble thing. However, Zavala falls into the trap of the end justifies the means and has created a prison out of the last city, as we see with Hawthorne. Uh-huh. And the problem the, in that 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 in and of itself kind of make I mean, I can see both sides of this debate, right? I can see why he does this. But I can also see the Hawthorns kind of having a problem with this because they were never, you know, they never got asked. They just got shackled. And it's like, oh, well, it's for your own protection. That line has so many misuses in history that it's just ridiculous to even try to start listening to that. Um, the other problem with Zavala is that, to be completely honest, he is a extreme isolationist when it comes to uh, military support and political um, diplomacy. Uh, mm-hmm. He is like super isolationist, uh, which is... You know, World War One, bad thing to be because it just it just doesn't it doesn't end well. Um, yeah, I think Zavala is I think Zavala has good intentions. I think Zavala is, for the most part, a good person or a good guardian, I guess. Good guardian. Um, but I think that there are degrees to which he is misguided. Uh, and I think that he but I also see that as. That is the reason why we have concepts such as the consensus in in effect, right? Zavala is mm-hmm. not meant to be the only, he's not meant to be the dictator. Like that, that is the point of the consensus. The consensus is there to, to, it's basically. The, the, the consensus wanted Zavala to be the leader. Well, to be fair. The, one, of the major, one of the major players <laughs> in the consensus wanted Zavala to be the monarchy. Yeah. But um, so like the thing with the consensus is that the consensus was built really, I, I personally think the consensus was built to temper the guardians because the guardians for the for bad or worse, they are warriors. They are fighters. They are they are guardians. They don't think about the you know the day-to-day life and that's what the consensus which is also the faction leaders the great factions that's why they exist is because they bring that information to the table where they sit down and they sit down with the speaker the vanguard 
which even in the Vanguard, you see a give and take between Zavala, Ikora, and until recently Cade. Those three balanced each other out. So now that Cade's gone, we see this we see this unbalancing, and the speaker's gone as well. We see an unbalancing of this organization that really was, for the most part, working pretty well in tandem. Like there were there were missteps, obviously, but they they worked very well to balance one another out. And now we have an imbalance in there, and that's kind of where you're seeing a lot of this these uh, stress factors, stress fractures. I guess would be the best word politically mm-hmm. to say. Um, with like this explains why Hawthorne, you know, is back in the city and promoting fa- or, uh, clans. She has a lot of lines about clans being guardians who are who are getting involved in city affairs. And that's that's a good thing because that is bringing to earth these these basically these demigods and making them realize that things are happening around them that they don't know about. Um, one one character, you know, to kind of segue into that, one character that was really good about that was Saint Fourteen. Mm-hmm. Saint Fourteen was a guardian of the people, and like that was that was what he was explained as. Saint Fourteen really did a good job of keeping himself grounded. But even Saint Fourteen, you know, made missteps, as we saw with like the web comic, right? Uh, Saint Fourteen liked fighting to the point where that's how he debated things with people. So, I mean, that's and that's again that goes back to my point about I, I like how Bungie has written these characters all with their own set of flaws. Um, like even even the quote unquote bad guys aren't a hundred percent bad. Rezal Azir, for the longest time, he was the hero. And that's mm-hmm. that's what made the tragedy of his fall into Dredge and Yor and the you know the darkness there. That's what that's that arc is what made it such a powerful narrative. Is that he was the person that w- he was the guardian that was on high and was the morally right thing morally right. And then now he's then he fell and is doing the polar opposite. You know, he went from the light into the darkness. Uh, Toland. Toland is also another one that, depending on your feelings of Toland, I know that a lot of people are very anti-Toland. Um, but Toland, even even so, Toland does have or did have some redeeming effects. Like there were things that he did that were supposedly for the betterment. Uh, the creation of Bad Juju was all for the experiment of trying to create weapons that harnessed the power of the darkness, but didn't corrupt. Now, unlike a weapon of sorrow, well, yeah. unlike Thorn, right, specifically. right. I mean, now I'm not. I'm also saying this. That was the intent. The consequence or the conclusion of the the experiment obviously was not the greatest. Mm-hmm. But the the intent, like what I'm saying, is like even even the bad guardians that we see. Like I mean, even the shadows of Yore. The shadows so, okay. of Yore have their own their own attempt to harness and cleanse the darkness to right get that they're trying power. to do it without without falling into the same trap that you did because they're following in his footsteps like that's something we're going to get into next week with unbra- uh, right. the unmaking right with um the fact that they're trying to figure out a way to harness that power without like falling prey to it i guess yeah, is a way to I, say it. I guess in my head the way i kind of make it the 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 picture in my head that I have of them is that they're following the path. Like Yor was walking a tightrope and fell off and they're walking the same tightrope with the knowledge of where he fell off and how he fell off. And so they're trying trying to avoid it. They're trying to avoid it, but it's still a tightrope. Like it's still, Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's still something you're probably going to fall off. Right. Toland, though. I mean, you have Toland, you have Yor, you have the Shadows. I And I know we were talking about how it's like a sliding scale. And you were talking like, hey, Toland does have redeeming qualities. Um, which one of the ones would you have said he fell into? Because he was, he was doing the experiment with the the good intent behind it to end the way it did but would you call that a bad moral choice because he went in there tampering with things that could be bad like i'm trying to figure out like how to categorize him but toland mm-hmm. yeah i mean toland toland's one of the ones that you see you see a weird confluence right with toland like his it hmm. like with toland i think the thing is is that in his dark, broken state, he was trying to do what he thought was right. Now, the the other thing with morality is that we have to also approach every conversation with the understanding that morality is really subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, what now, side of the line you're on now, to? Right. Like, personally, I think there are universal truths. Um, I, I think that there is a capital T truth that is out there that, you know, there is a universal right and wrong. Um that is my personal belief. So, but I also recognize that that is not a belief that's shared by everyone. I've had conversations mm-hmm. with people who have, I, I can't stand, stand relativism, but I know people who follow relativism. Um, right. I, yeah, whatever. Um, Can I ask you a devil's advocate question mm-hmm. to kind of tie into this whole, can an insane person be considered or can commit a bad act in relation from their their perspective uh well okay so the way you phrase that yes because it's from their perspective uh however they can can commit a bad act they so um i'm a big advocate of uh perception being very important in a person yes in a person's person's existence right uh Mm -hmm. a crazy person in their head is not crazy they are right. actually the sane one and everyone else is crazy. Uh, so mm-hmm. a break from reality, a psychotic break, is basically where your your perception of reality does not match, quote, what is real. Um, you, you can't recognize what is externally occurring around you as agreed upon by the rest of society. So you experience something different, whether that be determined as a hallucination um, or, you know, a, a, a true psychotic break where you're actually damaging things. You know, there, there's a lot of different flavors of psychotic breaks. Um, even within those psychotic breaks, arguably the individual who is undergoing that psychotic break is still in and of their, in and of themselves aware of what they are doing um, in reaction to what they're perceiving, uh, which is a very weird thing to say. Uh, so a person who is having hallucinations is going to react to those hallucinations in a way that is actually logical to them, not to us, like to us. Mm-hmm. We're like, cause we don't see the hallucinations, right? We, we, we have no, right. you know, I have no idea Perception what you're saying. It. I mean, that's, that's the, the paradigm is completely skewed there. We, we, you and I, because we are not undergoing a psychotic break, we have an agreement of what exists in reality outside of ourselves, if I look at a chair and you look at a chair, we can agree there's a chair. A person with right. a psychotic break sees a a snake. Like we there there's a completely un unreasonable level of difference in their perception. However, so, in their world, they are being logical. So in the answer is double sided. 
yes, in their world, they are culpable of bad decisions. But in our reality, I don't, I, I find it very hard to ascribe culpability to choices because, made to someone who is undergoing a psychotic break. Because they're outside of this social structure as far as their perception of the social structure. Yeah, they don't, they're not on the radar as far as right. that social. I mean, they're, that's, I right. mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, the social construct of what is good slash bad in a particular social. I mean, it, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to say, mm-hmm. but that is that is why in modern society we have the tendency to want to shutter people who are having issues away is because that's quote unquote the easy thing, um, and and that is where and and there is some cases in which I think that is applicable. Like you don't you don't want someone who's undergoing a break or someone who's, you know, not perceiving things uh, as the rest of society uh, to harm themselves, right? Definitely don't want to harm themselves or others. That's that's definitely a big thing. But um, I think to ascribe culpability on a person who is undergoing a psychotic break is doing a disservice to that person because they are ultimately, I, and again, this is my personal belief, I think that they are doing the best they can in the circumstances that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that's a long answer to the devil's yeah. advocate question, but that's okay. Can I can I relate it back to where we yes. were with yeah with the, Toland the bad, with Toland or Rezel even? Um, would either of those characters, in your unprofessional or professional opinion, cate- like be able to be categorized as having a psychotic break or having the break from reality to where they, in some ways, would not be culpable to their own? In relation to the rest of us, I guess is kind no, of yeah, the way yeah, no, that makes sense. I yeah. think Toland, Toland probably would be more likely of the two. Uh, okay, just my my from the little that we've seen of Toland, I think it. I mean, it considering it, he wanted to do the death song. Well, I mean, there's there's that. I mean, to be fair, Dredgen wanted to kill everything and thought of himself as a hurricane. So you know, I mean, the the right. this this the bar is kind of low there on which one is more <laughs> sane. Um, but I think, you know, that gets into the idea of like, does, does the, I mean, okay. So there's a difference between a psychotic break and sociopath, sociopaths, sociopath, um, yeah. um, a sociopathic behavior is more aligned with what Dredgen kind of exists in. Uh, he sees, he sees things as sources of nourishment, really honestly, uh, for hope and light. That's what he kind of devolves into. Toland Toland's I the quotes that we get from Toland within Destiny 2 especially within the Dreaming City like there is a sense in which he is still trying in one in some weird way to warn us mm-hmm. about stuff and so I find it really difficult with Toland to say that he's a sociopath um does, but he, does make he have the good, perceptions that's where I that's where I keep getting stuck hung up because, on uh-huh. because the Tolan that we see in the Ascendant Realm within Destiny 2, I really have a feeling is, I mean, he's he doesn't have a body anymore, so his reality is kind of not at all normal. Uh, so I can justify in my head that he's had a psychotic break. But the Tolan that we read about in the Grimoire from D1 is much more sociopathic, right? Like, he, mm-hmm. he's much more, he's going to sacrifice his fire team to go get this stupid song. Um, he drags Ariana to the pretty much to the altar 
to to sacrifice her to get the death song. Um, I mean, he invites her there. He yeah, I guess yeah, he encourages there. her to go there. Dragging um, her's a little strong. Uh, I just keep getting the sense of like he calls her a tin can, basically. Um, right. I mean, I and and that and that shows the complexity of his character, right? It, it definitely. Mm-hmm. Sh- I mean, and but but then again, he was also known as Tolan the Shattered. Right. So, so was I mean, he actually sane at he, that point? Yeah. Was he all there to begin with? I don't know. You know, and the same thing with Rezel. It's like, and the other thing that you have to take into, like, into consideration for these two is that you have an external source that is known to cause madness, right? You have the, mm-hmm. the worms and the whispering hive and all this stuff. Even the shadows mention this, and, and we'll get into this in the next week. But like when they find Rezel's ship, it is made of the bones and they are assaulted by the whispers that start driving them mad, even just stepping foot on his ship. So right. there's a question there of, you know, is, is, are they actually sociopaths or, you know, are they, are they just victims? Are they, are they literally victims of their own, you know, search for truth or search for whatever it is they could Rezel was very proud. Rezel was very, very aware of how powerful he was as a Titan. He was very aware of the the powers that he had both politically and physically. And so because of that pride, he went searching for, you know, challenges on the moon that led mm-hmm. to Sorrow's Road. Like, I'm not saying that he is not culpable for making the bad decision that led to the consequence, but once the corruption once an external effect once that external corruption was set in i think that's where culpability starts getting a little bit gray because as dredge and yore you see you see dredge and yore even at the depth depths of his actions in some way protecting the name of rezel azir he refuses to be acknowledged by rezel uh, we see that in the the ghost fragments where he refute like he he basically yells at his ghost to not call him and he says he mean he I can't remember the exact quote but he he makes the comment about if you let them know that I am that man everything that he has done will fall apart he takes on a different name so in in this weird way your is protecting Rezel and so because of that I find it really difficult to say your was. You know, Yor was completely aware of what he was doing. Yes, but Yor was also still trying to protect this this beacon of hope that he had been. And because of that choice, that's also why I kind of go back and forth on whether or not he really was willing to do a fight with Shin, or if he let Shin kill him. Um, yeah, I, I believe when I when I mentioned that to John, uh, he kind of was like, no. No, Shin's just really fast. Like, it's like, I mean, like, there was there was kind of a, dis- I, I don't think that was the intent, but I definitely read a part of that story as Dredge and Yor kind of letting Shin walk away because he knew what was going on. And if, and that flavors that story, that flavors that character's morality and their choices within that story, because if that was the case, then Dredge and Yor is actually a victim. He's not mm-hmm. the perpetrator of all, I mean, he is a perpetrator of all this terrible deeds, but it's because the cause of those terrible deeds is not a hundred percent on his shoulders. Um, Toland, you know, I, I don't know, like I, without knowing the story of Toland, when did he actually get, uh, when did he get obsessed with the hive when he but way when he, before, 
Right. And we knew that he was in exile even before the fire team. So, but, but why, what was going on with him? Was he already involved with, you know, the whispers of the corruption, you know, like there's, there's so many questions that are not answered for Toland that would also flavor the answer of is Toland a bad person or is he just a victim? And, you know, he's, he's a, he's a vessel of a darkness that is not of his own. Should we go to, I mean, Tolan and just the morality of those two in general, Tolan and uh, your can go for an entire episode easily, oh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Sunbreakers. Sunbreakers. Oh man. Sunbreakers are like deontology. Like, oh my gosh, they, they are, they're mercenaries. Like they, they are a hundred percent focused on them on their a sunbreaker protects the sunbreakers. They are loyal to the sunbreakers. Like that is mm-hmm. that's their orchestrating mentality. Um, interestingly enough, I kind of get the feeling that that entire loyalty to themselves was kind of actually forced upon them when they weren't allowed in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they these are the these are the titans who roam the wilds before the city and who have never you know al- allegedly never stepped foot into the city until our guardians you know brokered a tenuous peace between us between them um but sunbreakers are very much focused on uh the obligations of a contract uh every single interaction with the sunbreakers whether it be with osiris whether it be with the vanguard um was always around a contract there was always an agreement of what was being done by who and who was responsible for it and they always upheld their end of the bargain they were very mercy merc- mercenary like Right. That being said, again, um, we know that they have a very powerful sense of honor. I don't know their honor code. Like I don't, I don't know the code that they are adhered to. Right. So I couldn't, I couldn't tell you my thoughts on the more morality of that code. Um, if it's anything like you know the chiv- the code of chivalry, then obviously that seems like a pretty pretty good code. There's a few things that are kind of odd in it, but. Um, it's for the most part pretty good. Uh, as far as the information that we have about the Sunbreakers, you know, they they are very loyal to Sunbreakers. They don't, for as far as we know, um, they have not rescinded on any contracts dishonorably. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I kind of I firmly put them in a neutral position <laughs> because I, like mm-hmm. I said, I don't have enough information to say, oh, these are good guys. Right. Because they are well, mercenaries. Even with, Saint 14, even with Saint 14 and like you listed uh, the the Iron Lords and ladies. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's not a, enough information that we have on really either of those two to definitively say that they were good. Yeah. Saint, I, I'll go for it. Sort of. Like yeah. Saint 14, we have a lot of stories that are from other people that Saint was good. Saint was held up. Well, so was Rizal Azir before he fell. Mm-hmm. So- it's hard to be able to say that they were good people or they were morally right or morally good. Right. And the reason I would, I kind of lump the Lords of Iron into the air quote good camp was because of the context in which they were rising against. Um, right. Even, <laughs> even, even Drifter. Even about that one. So, uh-huh. <laughs> even Drifters, like they were always goody, goody, two shoes type. Like there's oh, an yeah. idle yeah. dialogue voice line where he talks about that. And I mean that's mostly around like Radagast, right? Radagast, right? Uh, Saladin. Not Felwinter. What? 
not not enough not no, enough information he, not enough he information. was drug, he was coerced by the rest of them <laughs> i'm not gonna argue with mm-hmm. that because that mm-hmm. is that is accurate but at the same time i mean at the same time he didn't have to be coerced like there are a lot of warlords that they went to talk to that ended up not joining them you know and it's so it's like i don't know Fellwinter. i think i i don't feel comfortable really ascribing Fellwinter to anything other than undecided in my book right now because we don't have i mean we have that really weird entry from winter's guile that i still don't really understand what's going on in it. um because he doesn't trust his ghost and there's a huge like I I just I Phil Winter is a very interesting character. I'm gonna say that I'm very interested to see where his story goes. We know right. the end. We know the ending of it, but we don't really understand anything about the beginning, or you know, even have really any information about the middle. Um, I'm actually kind of excited to see what happens with Phil Winter because there's a lot of potential with Phil Winter uh, to be used to clarify a lot of things. I, I, I just mm-hmm. I, I see Phil Winter as a really big potential from the storytelling perspective, uh, mostly because of what we saw within Winter's Guile, uh, and then also with his react or his interactions with uh, uh, is it Satan Kaiten? I can't remember how you pronounce his name. The warlord Satan or whatever, um, right? <clears throat> the warlord that he he guns down. Um, there's a lot of comments on both sides that hint at a deeper story there uh so it's definitely a thread that i'm really interested in seeing where they take that particular one if they take it anywhere i think i think there's a lot of um potential there can we dive into our own guardian we've talked about npcs quite a bit but what about our guardian and granted we like personally headcanon i would like to make my own decisions and that's something I mentioned in the summary at the beginning of the episode is just like, we don't have actually control over our own moral obligations at this point. So you don't have that real freedom with that. But where do we lie on the morality at this point? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so this is this is the problem with an MM, right? I know Destiny's not really an MM, but it kind of is. Um, and the introduction of things such as titles, uh, really highlights, I think, the disparity here. Because, mm-hmm. for example, my guardian, uh, for reasons both in and out of game, doesn't have the title Dredgen. I just, you know, there's there's reasons outside of game why it doesn't have it. And also, even in game, I don't want my character to have that title. I don't agree with that title. Um, but in the confines of a video game world, uh, does that matter? You know, I, it... It depends on if we see this coming down the pipe and, you know, down once the uh, the next season starts, does that change anything? Does our characters have the ability to have that affect, you know, other characters' reactions to our character? You know, if that's the case, then sure. I mean, I guess that I think that would be giving players a bit of uh, uh, control over their destiny, if you will. Uh, but then again, you know, there's events that we've chosen or not chosen to do, you know, the slaying of gods. We didn't really choose to do it as far as like players. 
we didn't choose to go in there. That was a very linear storytelling. That's that's the the confines of a video game is that it's very ultimately very linear. Even the most open world video game has a linear story. Right. Um, now that being said, there there are there are options within certain types of games. Obviously, like Bethesda has a lot of games. Skyrim, uh, Oblivion, The Elder Scrolls does a very good job of portraying like the moral compass, the karma system. A lot of games are starting to incorporate that. Um, so it depends. I mean, I, I think right now our character is in a gray area. That's the, the way that in lore we have been described, uh, especially by Shin uh, with letters of the renegade or letters mm-hmm. from a renegade. He describes us as characters who've actually helped break his view of the world uh, as a black and white thing that we are we are heroes with a shade of villain in us and so i think if you're talking about in in game lore i believe that our character is fulfilling the the role of a third path that is neither light nor darkness good nor evil um, ironically it's something that shen talks about in Letters of a Renegade of having somebody who can walk that fine line between the two. And right. Dr- uh, Drifter also talks about it a little bit. Osiris, the parables of the offspring, you know, which is not Osiris, it's crazy Vance, but, yeah. um, you know, they, they talk about it. Saint 14 has mentions of, it. I mean, like there, a lot of the powerful figures will have mentions of like dabbling in the darkness and or dabbling in the light. I mean, that's that actually honestly really makes me kind of excited to see what they do with that because with as much focus as they have right now on symmetry in game, I keep going back to I want to see a character from the darkness come into the light. Right. I think that would be an amazing no, not well, I don't consider the fallen necessarily in the darkness. I'm talking right. hive. I'm I'm talking mm. like a hive character who comes to the light. We've seen a guardian fall to the darkness. I don't understand why we couldn't see the opposite happen. Um, especially if symmetry is actually a thing that they're going with, which, you know, we could see, I don't know what they're going to be doing with the pyramid ships. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential there though, that if they choose to really, if they choose to double down on the symmetry thing, there's a lot of really cool effect or really cool story arcs that could happen because of that. Right. Right. Ooh, trigger through in Teox, whether or not Teox. Yeah, I know. I so I'll be honest. My my personal <clears throat> my I had I had for the longest time my personal theory about Nocris uh, was that the reason why he wasn't mentioned in the Hive uh, archives was because he had betrayed the Hive and joined the Light. Uh, sadly, that did not did not happen. But I still think it would have been a fun. Mm-hmm. So do we have? Let's see. We have discussions of. Purpose of the Vanguard mentors, purpose of ghosts, purpose of speakers. How does that relate to the morality? You you wrote all these notes in, and I'm I'm actually at a loss of what you mean by these guys in particular. So so this kind of goes into the debate of are morals a a taught thing or are they an inherently understood thing? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, I think that there is a degree of morality that is intrinsically present in in a person. Um, but I think a large part of the moral codes that we see in reality and even in games too are very 
driven by interactions with people of power figure figures and figures in power uh such as the vanguard mentors there's a reason they're called mentors is because and this was very much more i think i got the feeling this was much more prevalent in d1 than it has been in d2 uh but the vanguard mentors were really there to help bring in and show new guardians how to use their powers uh, there is a there's a line from Ikora within the Stormcaller quest from D1 in which she calls this out and she says that our guardian has now surpassed you know her ability to to comfortably teach us right. uh, and and that is something that makes her nervous about our guardian because our guardian for all for all reasonable intents is very young compared to Ikora Osiris told mm-hmm. the other the other characters who have achieved the level of power that our guardian has achieved in such a short time was very unnerving to her um but the other thing is is that the mentors are there to to not just guide you know not just to order us what to do right it's not just a military commander or a a uh, a snarky sarcastic you know best friend who's in the tower they're they're there to show us how to interact with the world around us and inside the lore of the game that is much more prevalent than inside the game world. The game world really that is kind of what they are. They they're there right. to kind of fill in the fill in the the uh, the quiet spots and give us a purpose to come back day to day. In the lore though, if you look and you know especially with like uh, Andal Brask and all these characters, we see the the interaction between Cade and uh, Cade. And excuse me, God, I just blinked on Shiro. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure. When when Shiro, Cade, and Andal are broken up after Andal goes to become a vanguard. Oh my gosh! Like you see, but you see the falling out of them because, and and that's partially because the hunters hunters are notoriously very difficult for vanguard. That's the entire point of having the dare is to trap a hunter into being a vanguard. Um, but that's why with Cade, for example, Cade and Tevis, Tevis is actually one of those characters or figures that Cade relies on to teach hunters how to do things. Uh, there's a lot of comments about that. There's another character and I just blanked on her name. Who's another hunter who does a lot of teaching of in the wild, how to do things for younger hunters. Oh my hunters. God. I know who you're thinking. Um, oh not, God, I'm going to get killed. Ani, Ani. Innate? I can't remember. It's anyway. It's it's basically. I think if I remember correctly, it's like I want to say it's Sumerian for teacher or something. I can't remember the language. It's it's. But um, she's a she's an instructor that also has comments uh, similar to Tevis. But but that's the entire thing is that they are there to kind of guide us in our early days and show us mm-hmm. and mentor us. That is why we call them Vanguard mentors. Um, as far as the ghost, you know, we, we definitely have that on the pole. Uh, but I I think that the ghost is a much more intimate form of... Uh, I think the ghost is a much more intimate form of the mentors. I feel right. like that is, you know, they're, they're, you're, they're, they well, are there the other from thing the is initial the ghost spark. Doesn't, they don't provide you a moral structure necessarily. I don't know. There's no like... Uh, I, think, I think that depends on the ghost though too, right? You think... Cause I, I I get the feeling that some I think so I, I, I get see, the feeling I can't I really can't see pulled pork saying too much 
which is why I said I think it depends on the ghost. <laughs> I know I know pulled pork is a beacon of moral strength, but um and our ghost he will try to say things every once in a while, I guess. Well, I and I know. think there's also a balance there too because you know ultimately to be blunt what is the ghost like what what are they what are they able to do short of just refusing to resurrect them which i mean to be fair there have been ghosts who do that mm-hmm. they're like you know the uh the uh, the ghost with the warlord who just basically was like finally like okay look you're not listening i'm not resurrecting you i'm not continuing this right so there is a there is a point at which the ghost does have ultimately <clears throat> the power to kind of be like all right look you know what enough's enough um but then on the flip side, you have the ghost of like Dredge and Yor, who was constantly there and constantly supported him throughout all the, the travesties, travesties that he performed. And it actually took Dredge and threatening to kill it to drive it away. Right. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Purpose of the Speaker and the Consensus. I think I, we kind of talked about that with uh, Zavala when we were talking about Zavala, right? right? Um, I, I view them as... as uh, ways to temper the the uh i think enthusiasm would probably be the best word the enthusiasm mm-hmm. of the guardians because guardians you know we see that with the owl sector uh the owl sector when they're trying to quarantine the guardians they're like they throw things and they're really strong like you know the poor owl sector civilians are like we can't or they're trying to quarantine the all the guardians who are getting the moats who are getting infected and like they're like they're all they're, they they broke stuff and they're trying to like they're threatening us and so I view the consensus um, the consensus really as the as the tempering like the human side to the control of the city and then the speaker really as the uh, the way I kind of get it or the way my brain kind of reads it is that the speaker is really the the final the first among equals I guess if you would within the consensus so you had the great factions which brought the human side you had the three vanguard which brought the guardian side and then you had the speaker who kind of spoke for you know the final break because there's three three and then seven okay i really okay i really want to do a um not necessarily a morality but kind of a continuation of this episode from a different perspective from the hive and the fallen and obviously not the vex because the vex are kind of their I'm, own yeah i mean, I mean we could there's, there's a logic there the vex are much more uh <clears throat> as far as we know with the vex right now right that, that's the thing with the vex is like there's <laughs> the base program is not really familiar we're not familiar with their base program right there's too much unknown about their origins that could really flavor a conversation morality mm-hmm. but an episode or some at least maybe a let's chat on the I enemies think that's fair. yeah enemy races and kind of talk about the I mean, morality the hive, and the hive alone oh would, would be, be fascinating, fascinating I'd, yeah i'd love to go into that one because i, I mean would... in in the same way that i mean to be fair the hive in their own way it's a broken system as far as morality goes but there is a there is a logic to it um and i think that's the the ingenuity of uh really uh seth in his writing of Books of Sorrow, is that he captures really well the alienness of the hive. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing the thing is, is like everything that we've talked about right now is really is human. 
It's, right. it's, it's, it's earth. not even awoken because awoken is their own thing too. Right. And, but I mean, to be fair, even the awoken, some will take some of the morality from humanity. Like oh, they, yes. they do, they do borrow some of it, but they do, they also have their own. I mean, that's definitely, definitely the case. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's, it's interesting to, tr- the, the danger is you can't really ascribe human mor- morals to a alien race. And I think that's the beauty of what the books of sorrows really did right? was it showed the tragedy that occurred to the, the krill and then the hive and, but then the complacency in or at least in our minds, the complacency of the subsequent generations of hive. Whereas like, you know, if that's all, you know, it, it's like, it's like ascribing, you know, me as an American, I can't speak to someone who's from a third world country. Like the the morals are socially and culturally going to be very dependent upon the individual who is perceiving that particular case. Um, you know, a person who has never lived in a war-torn area will not be able to understand the hierarchy of needs that the person who lives in that that they their their paradigm, their world is completely and utterly different. It's it's light and day or night and day difference. Sorry, um, and that you know that's where you kind of get into the the debate for the psychology of the hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, someone who's on the very low end of those high or the the base, the foundation of the hierarchy of needs. You know, safety, security, food, water. They're not cared about self actualization, which is where a lot of the first world countries will be. Um, you know. If, Self-actualization is like the high, you know, hey, I don't need to worry about where my food's coming from tomorrow. And I don't need to worry that someone's going to randomly come into my city and shoot me Mm -hmm. because that's just that doesn't that doesn't happen in our world, our world. But and the air quotes around the world there, because when I say world, that means our society, other societies, other worlds. That is a common occurrence, and so their 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 entire sense of morals is going to be more reflective of that. And so, with regards to like the hive, I mean, even even like you know, kind of talking about the worlds of destiny, right? You you have a distinction even in humanity between the risen and the warlords, the iron lords in the city. The city and the current age. There's there's a kind of the three es- the three eras I would argue are really easy to differentiate between, um, because with the risen and the warlords, you have you have a morality based around a very very primal, very very strength is might is right. Right. Since um, you have people who are being reborn with the abilities of demigods who are effectively immortal. And there's not a lot of surprise in my brain that humanity is going to gravitate towards, no, I have the ability to tell you what to do. That's something that is very not surprising given the historical nature of humans. Um, But then in that sense, you also then get, so there's, there's a egocentrical, uh, individualistic world of the risen and the warlords, but then all of a sudden you see the branching into the iron lords and the early city and the, this, this idea of community and the strength in numbers, the pack, you know, pack mentality. And in the same way that the guardians today in the game operate within fire teams because you are stronger in a group the iron lords are able to take on the warlords 
and that's you know you see that happen uh there the the best example is the face off between Sagoth and uh Saladin Perun and I believe it was Radagast the three of them the three of them were able to hold him down because they were able to resurrect each other behind their shields whereas he only had himself or I think he might have had some other guardian or some other risen him but like they were not working in tandem like the iron lords were and so because they cooperated because they worked in tandem because they worked you know together they were able to overthrow those who ruled through fear because they ruled in cooperation. And that kind of blossomed into the, the city age, which is, you know, the building of the city, you know, all this other stuff. Um, and then that that city age eventually led to what was called the Age of Triumph. Then the Age of Triumph, you know, we had the entire incident at the beginning of Destiny 2, and that's where we kind of are now. So, you know, the, the transformation of moral codes, though, can be also very easily seen there. You have a tran- you have a, a metamorphosis of a society that believes that the warlords are, you know, they're obviously the kings. Like that's just you know, divine command theory. If mm-hmm. you really, if you really want to go there, um, and I mean, I could see, I could totally see some of those warlords being that, like you know, doing that. That's fine. That gives them power. But then you have the Iron Lords who who then come in and are like, you know, we are the same, but we are not going to lord it over you. We are going to guard them. Our duty is to protect these people, not subject these people. Um, and then you have figures like Rezel, Saladin, and all these characters who are, are uh, Shax and Zavala who are in around that area. They start forming into... And then, of course, you have... Humanity, which humanity is a political animal, so once you get them into a city, you have the faction wars, and that's where the the kind of the formalization of like, no, guardians do not get involved in human affairs. Like that's, you know, that's kind of where that kind of sense gets put in there, uh, which is where you get the consensus is, you know, the, the division between guardians and humanities, I think, were so severe that they had to have the consensus to to allow that bridge to still exist. Um, but yes. I don't know if that answers the question. It it definitely, I think it definitely gives us food for thought. I don't know. It's hard to answer these kind of questions, I think. Well, I think these are, I think these are understandably ongoing debates that should be ongoing debates, right? I don't, right. I don't think there is, there is an answer to the question, but the answer does not. The answer is just another question, which is the fun, I mean, that going back to that's the whole point of ethics is it's a school of philosophy. Like. <laughs> Right. If you, if you don't know that by now, philosophy is all about answering a question with a question. Um, and it's not it's not like to drive it in a circle. It's it's hopefully to to whittle it down and kind of get a clear picture of stuff. But I mean, morality morality is a tough is a tough thing to define because it it's there's so many there's so many nuanced cause like I mean, so going back to like the Toland and Rezel conversation, right? Mm-hmm. A new piece of information can be given to us as as uh, archivists, if you want to say, if you want to call us that, um, that completely changes the tone of those characters. Like you could be if if they come out tomorrow and they say, no, Dredgen, Dredgen, you're in the showdown on Dwindler's Ridge actively chose to let Shen shoot him. That changes the entire story of Dredgen. That 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 completely turns a lot of things on its head. Um, you know, because because that indicates that he was full of sorrow himself. You know, he he was a victim. Um, 
or they could come out and say, you know, Tolan knows exactly what he's doing. You know, like I'm, I, they're not going to, but like, you know, they could come out and they could say something that simple and it, it, it just, it changes everything. Toland is a hundred percent aware of what's going on. Well, now he's just a sociopathic a-hole, you know, like, I mean, which again, changes our interpretation. You know, the, the sunbreakers could be all of a sudden, you know, I don't, I don't know, like in allegiance with a cabal or, you know, something, there's some crazy stuff that they could be doing that completely changes our perception of them. And that's both the fun and the infuriating thing of morality is that it's a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a black and white thing. It, it completely depends on the situation. I Right. And I think that's the whole point of the way they write these stories though, to kind of showcase that, to showcase that it is not always going to be black and white. Right. And I think that's to kind of break the, the fourth wall you know, even more so. I think that's where a lot of frustration comes from mm-hmm. is, is because it, if you're, if you aren't pouring over every single word very carefully, which I mean, even, even we, even I get surprised sometimes because I'll, I'll miss something. But like, if you don't approach it with that adaptable uh, sense of this is an evolving story that is not static, then mm-hmm. you're going to, then any surprise is naturally going to be very shocking. Um, and a natural development of a character might seem as a retcon when really it's nothing more than a clarification that is in line with their entire personality. Um, you know, to be fair, there are things that go on in reality with people who we think we know very well that you have no idea. Right. No one, no one knows what's going on in another person's head. And so if you approach a fictional world in the same sense that you approach, you know, to a degree a real world individual, I think that you're going to have a lot more um, patience maybe uh, for, mm-hmm. for the sudden changes that sometimes we see like the whole Rizal Azir thing that, right. that still cracks me up, but like that whole, that whole thing. Um, you know, I, I, I think that surprise was definitely there, but people's reaction to the surprise, I think was where that, that adaptability really shone through. Definitely. Do we have any dispatches for this week? I do not have any dispatches for this. I was afraid that I would uh, not be able to stop talk about the branches of ethics. It's okay. It's okay. It is a nice introduction for anybody who's never taken philosophy or ethics, because these both kind of tie into each other a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, like I like I said at the beginning, like the the difficult thing. The difficult thing with morality and ethics is that they are so, they're so tightly intertwined. Um, I guess the easy, you know, like kind of what we set up at the top of the show, the easiest way to look at it is morality is the thing and ethics is the attempt to explain the thing, um, which probably is about as clear as mud to anybody who is not used to that type of statement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I apologize. I don't, I was trying to think of a easy way of saying it, but it's like, I mean, so ethics, ethics is trying to explain morality, right? But morality still is, the morality is like, is an action right or wrong? Ethics is trying to understand those questions that lead us to understanding if something's right or wrong. I think that's a good wrap up of that. I think that's, (laughs) I mean, as much as you can. I, I, I mean, like, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's, just, it's, it's a, t- it's, 
it's a bit of a it's a bit of a loop to go through. I, it's really, right. I mean, defining ethics and defining morality without like crossing streams is really difficult because it's not really possible. Okay. Um, yeah, that is. Oh man, these episodes always make my head spin a little bit. I will tell you that. I I love them. I love talking about the the character choices, but I'm also like, oh my gosh, it is not black and white, and it never is black and white. So, Blue. uh, shout outs. Do you have any? Uh, uh, there is a stream coming up for Saint 14 project. I can't remember the date. Let me see if I can find it real quick. That is my only shout out, I believe, next weekend. So, the weekend of uh, the 23rd, they are going to be doing a charity stream. So, if you guys could keep your ears to the ground use low to the ground to kind of hop in there and help those guys out. They do a lot of these charity streams for mental health, since we talked about that a little bit during this episode, which is great. And so if you guys would hop in there and give them your support, even if you don't like donate or whatnot, just definitely go say hi, go watch the stream a little bit. And I think that will be my shout out for this week. Awesome. And um, really just a big shout out to the live chat. Again, we really appreciate you guys. We had a bit of technical issues on this one, and I just appreciate you guys' patience and being being adaptable, I guess, if you will, to dealing with that. Um, yay, Discord. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I guess you know, it's a pretty short shout out. Actually, it's a shorter episode too. I was actually, I'm surprised that it was a shorter episode. You did good. You I did good. talked really fast. You um, get a cookie. <laughs> Play this um, at half speed, everybody, so you can digest it as you're listening. <laughs> Play it at half speed. Normally you play it at double speed, but this one you might want. Um <laughs> no so we'll we'll probably stick around uh for a little bit of an after show and uh then we'll we'll see you guys next week bye with that we'll begin to wrap the chat up thank you again to those over on twitch for coming to spend your evening with us if you'd like to join us for the live streaming of the episodes please be sure to give us a follow over on twitch.tv slash focused fire chat links to all our episode archives can also be found at www.focusfirechat.com Please be sure to email us at focusfirechat at gmail.com with any comments or questions for our team concerning the podcast and let us know how we're doing by giving us some feedback and a rating over on iTunes as well. Also, be sure to check out all the amazing work being featured over on thelorenetwork.com. So until next time, focus your fire and may your light shine bright.